Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Here we are, ladies and gentlemen, at the start of another exciting week in the Independent Republic. It feels as though our efforts from last week are beginning to bear fruit. While the illegal migrant boats continue to pitch up on our shores this morning, it definitely seems like there is a change in the air, doesn't it? Home Secretary Priti Patel has appointed a channel threat commander to deal with the problem. And former Maritime Security Specialist Dan Omani uh, says he will get to work today to, in his words, end the heinous crime of people smuggling as Home Office Minister Chris Filt prepares to meet with French officials at the same time to agree terms to return many of them to whence they came. Finally, something appears to be being done. The big problem, however, remains, and that is that big companies like Serco have been guaranteed vast amounts of money to manage these illegal migrants. More on that later on. It's going to be a massive week on the coastal towns of South East England, and we will do our very level best to keep the pressure on the government. And we need you to help out as well. We'll be speaking to Richard Tice, the chair of the Brexit Party, and of course, we need your assistance as well. So we want to hear from you, particularly if you know what is going on in those particular coastal towns on the southeast uh, corner of England in the Kent coast in the Sussex coast as well I mean I was down in Sussex at the weekend and unfortunately the thing that you find yourself now doing is staring out into the deep blue yonder looking for people arriving on dinghies I didn't actually see any in Bexhill uh, because they tend to come in a little bit further east than that. But Folkestone, Dover, um, you know, uh, Peth levels, uh, you've got Hastings as well. All sorts of uh, mainstream media now covering this story because we have managed to kick up enough of a fuss about it uh, that people are actually now carrying themselves on Sky, on BBC, on ITV as well. Uh, 0344 Coming up later on, we'll be hearing from Mail on Sunday columnist Peter Hitchens, who, in addition to his weekly tirade against the powers that be, uh, who he says are forced him to comply with a series of safety measures regarding the COVID-19 virus. Has questioned the elevation of Claire Fox to the House of Lords. We shall test his resolve once more uh, on this show. Also, we'll get the latest on the travel and holiday situation with Lisa Francesco Nand live in southern Spain. And we might even take a look at the rather ridiculous spectacle of Labour MP Dawn Butler laughing her way through a reversed video recording of her sitting in a passenger seat pretending she's been somehow racially profiled by the police in London over the weekend. This is where we are now in this country, ladies and gentlemen. People are actually arguing about how black the driver of the car is. Is he light-skinned? Is he black? Is he white? 
Who cares, right? The police stop a car because they think there's something suspicious going on. If they make a mistake, they apologise, which they did. If they don't make a mistake and they don't stop the right car, somebody gets murdered. Nobody seems to care about that. What sort of a world are we living in, by the way? 0344 499 1000. And we're also talking schools with Calvin Robinson, the latest battleground for the uninitiated and the work-shy teachers who seem to be the last people who want to go back to work. For heaven's sake, just get on with it, will you? You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest great radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Lots more to come throughout the course of the day. We're here, of course, until one o'clock. Let's talk straight away, though, to Richard Tice, uh, a man who knows a thing or two um, about illegal immigration because the Brexit party fought and won the battle to leave the European Union. And one of the reasons we fought the battle to leave the European Union was to stop immigration being forced upon us. Richard, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning to you, Mike. I hope you're feeling okay after a great weekend. You clearly had. Listen, I did. I mean, people said to me, you know, how long does your birthday last? I went, well, at least three days, you know. And why are you surprised by that? Listen, I'm fascinated by the background that you're sitting in front of there. It's making me feel very cool watching it. The truth is, Mike, you're always talking about your wonderful view. I'm stuck in a (laughs) non-air-conditioned office, so I thought... I'll try and feel a bit cooler by having a different background. Do you know, it's working for me, I must say. But listen, let's talk <laughs> about... Uh, Nigel was on. Uh, Nigel Farage was on Julie Hartley Brewer's show this morning. You know, he brought this to everybody's attention about 10 days ago. I put out a tweet last night saying, you know, this is where it all began. I'm really pleased to see that everybody else has now picked up on the story. I'm pleased to see that Pretty Patel has appointed now some commander or other to sort of take over uh, the, yep. the, the channel business. I know you will have reservations about how successful that may be. But at least we're moving in the right direction, it seems. Yeah, there's no question that because of the, uh, the work that Nigel has done, uh, the mainstream media has been left with no choice but to, uh, you know, to, to pick up on this issue. Uh, you know, the numbers coming across this year have been increasing. Uh, it, it's been clear for some time this is going on. And, you know, at the moment, yes, we've got, uh, we've, we've got some warm words and all the, the right chat and noise and talk from the Home Secretary. Um, but the question is whether or not they actually turn all the talk uh, into action. That's what people really want to see. You know, what is going to be the action? And it's not good enough just to say, we're going to have a review, we've reached a new agreement. You know, people want to see action and, and to see this being under control and stop. And, you know, the truth is at the moment, there's just far too much incentive for too many people. There's so much money involved. And, you know, you've got to stop the money chain. This is a this is a, this is a business. It's an industry, an illegal people smuggling business. It's over a million pounds a day, is what I estimate at the moment, Mike. It really is extraordinary. And my worry as well, Richard, is that not only are the people smugglers getting rich, but the people who run companies like Serco and others, and there are there are several others, are also getting rich. And there's no incentive for them, uh, these people who have got these massive government contracts, to stop bringing people in. Well, it's it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? So Serco reduced their half year results last week. Uh, and, you know, if you're a shareholder, you're delighted. Mm. Uh, their turnover's up by about 25%. Their profits are up by over 50%. And the contracts that they secured in 2019 to look after asylum seekers, they admitted back then it was their biggest ever contract, almost £2 billion over a 10-year period. Um, they said then they were looking after 17,000 asylum seekers. In these results they've just announced, they, they say they're looking after an additional nearly 3,000 asylum seekers um, and that they'll earn uh, some £150 million this year alone. So it's great business for them. 
the last thing in the world they want is for this problem to be sorted. Exactly right. And there seems to be two levels of entry into this country for these illegal immigrants. One is the place where they get taken to as a hotel. And I've got a story from the weekend in Birmingham where even Birmingham City Council are upset because they weren't told what they were being forced to do in their own community, uh, i.e. basically that there were plans to relocate 238 asylum seekers uh, days before the first were due to arrive. And you sort of go, well, how is this possible? There seems to be this kind of almost clandestine operation going on. Um, you know, local MPs don't know about it. Local councils don't know about it. And if they're not being housed, yeah. if they're not being housed yeah, in hotels, be- they're being given accommodation, you know, on a relatively permanent basis. I, I think they all absolutely know about it, Mike. The councils know, the local MPs know. Um, you know it's a bit like some of these other scandals uh, that have gone on and been finally uncovered in recent years, where actually um, councils and authorities, they view it too politically uh, incorrect to raise this issue. They know what's going on. They've been trying to ignore it, cover it up, uh, hide it, because it's just in the too difficult box. Uh, but finally, uh, this issue has, has become clear. Many, many people uh, have contacted um, Nigel Farage to say there's a hotel here, there's a hotel there. There are hundreds of them all over the country. And, you know, uh, people are very concerned that their hard-earned taxes at a time of, you know, we've got a huge economic crisis uh, here in the UK. You know, people know it's a very difficult time and they don't want to see money being wasted on a situation that this Conservative government promised would be sorted yes. a year ago. Right. The Prime Minister said um, that illegal immigrants would be, you know, would be sent back from where they came, mm. and he's done nothing about it. And how much of this, as far as you're aware, Richard, is, is, is the government having its hands tied by the EU and EU laws? I mean, they're kind of hinting that, that that's the problem and that they can't break away from those. But I would have thought, surely, since we've now left, we can. No. Let's be honest, that's a very convenient excuse. You and I know where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. And, you know, as, if, if we take a constructive approach to this, I actually believe that it would be perfectly possible to reach an agreement uh, with the French authorities to say, look, actually, this is a joint problem. Let's run it as a joint operation. And let's focus on making sure that the people smugglers cannot get... Uh, they're in their, their vile trade going because we prevent them from, from getting the dinghies and the boats from leaving the shores of France. There's about a 30 to 40 mile stretch of coastline. It would not be beyond the wit of man to have, let's say, give or take 20 or 30 um, fast moving boats, uh, you know, with, with joint teams on board that are patrolling that coastline, preventing those boats from leaving um, and arresting them and, and finding, you know, who's actually organising this. And again, you've got to remove the incentive. The people smugglers, when they get caught, they need to know that basically they're going to jail for a very, yeah. very, very long time. And like, and like most criminal enterprises, Richard, I mean, I've always been one of those of the belief that if you leave your front door open, you're much more likely to get robbed uh, than if you lock it. Similarly, if you leave your car window open, you're far more likely to get something stolen out of it than if you shut it. You know, therefore, if you make it difficult for people to come here, they'll it's stop coming in such such numbers. And and I'm sure there must be ways of doing it. Because I was told last week by a merchant seaman who rang in, who used to work on the ferries, who said there's a very small window every single day of when the tide is in the right direction for these people to come here. So we've got you don't even have to patrol 24-7. You just have to patrol when the tide is running. Yeah, the, 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 there's, there's those issues about the tides, the timing. But, you know, these people smugglers are clever, so they will find ways around. You know, unless, 
it is made absolutely clear that they're not going to succeed. So this idea of the French Navy escorting boats to the halfway line and then literally handing them over, as was previously being done, that's all got to stop. It's yeah. going to be exactly the opposite. Uh, a joint operation that catches the boats literally within a few hundred yards of leaving the French shore and return them and have security services arrest the people that are setting the boats off, the smugglers. Um, and people need to know that nobody who comes uh, this way into the UK will ever be granted asylum. It's about incentives. Remove the incentive and it will stop. They yeah. saw that in Australia. They very successfully dealt with it. We can do the same. It requires political will. And what do you make of these people like uh, David Miliband, uh, Ian Dunt, uh, who actually issued this as a tweet yesterday? Anyone crossing the channel in a rubber dinghy is in a state of acute desperation. I'm proud they think Britain is a place of hope. I feel sorry for those so incapable of empathy that they see them only as invaders. I mean, I've never read so much rubbish in my life until Dawn Butler came out with a video. What, what on earth anybody wants to listen to David Miliband? Here's a man who basically <laughs> fled the country so that he could earn hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds, if not millions of pounds, mm. uh, working for um, an international charity. So let's let's put him to one side. Yeah. And as to this issue of being desperate, listen, hundreds of thousands of people are going on holiday to France. It's not a desperate country. It's right. a wonderful country. Uh, it is a safe country. Um, it requires political will between the two governments, uh, you know, to, to, to catch the smugglers, uh, to stop people leaving the French shores, and to deal with them uh, on a joint basis, and then this issue will be sorted. Yes, because my worry is that this is a much bigger problem than we even know. I've been asking people to write to their local MP and ask the question, could you please confirm or deny that you are currently in my constituency housing anyone uh, in a hotel at my expense who is from a different country and is here illegally? And so far, you'd be amazed how few MPs have actually returned the favour of a letter or an email. So I'm going to start putting the pressure on the local MPs, I think, to try and get them so that we can get a picture of how big this problem is because at the very least it would seem there's about 50,000 um, illegal immigrants here being housed in hotels. Uh, there's no question. I think most of those MPs do know, uh, you know, when, uh, where there are detention centres or hotels that are being used as um, uh, centres for asylum seekers, illegal immigrants. Mm. They know full well, Mike, uh, but the last thing in the world they want uh, is to admit it and that they've done nothing about it. I'm not sure you'll get many replies to your letters. Yeah, well, we'll still shake a few trees and see what we can uh, we, we can discover. Finally, uh, Richard, just on the subject of the EU, uh, how confident are you about the leaving of it at the end of December, um, that w w which is going to be done in a, in a reasonable fashion? I think we're moving towards um, a reasonable kind of level of, of, of a deal, probably. Uh, but if there is no deal, I wouldn't be worried about that. No, look, the reality is, let's remember, we have left. It's now just whether or not... Uh, a, uh, an agreement can be reached that um, it is a suitable compromise for both sides. I'm still optimistic that a partial deal will be reached, albeit at the 11th hour, which, which will maintain some red lines for both sides. Um, and the great thing about trade deals is you don't have to agree everything up front. You can agree a phase deal on some of the key issues. And I think that's, that's eminently likely. But let's remember, the truth is that uh, the... The trade deal between the UK and the EU uh, is actually a drop in the ocean compared to the much, much bigger economic crisis that we have got staring us in the face. You've only got to look out of your window, Mike, across the city of London. It is deserted. 
That is a serious crisis. Tens of thousands of people that service offices are in the process of losing their jobs. You know, my local Starbucks in, in, uh, in the West End, they're doing 5% of normal turnover. That is not sustainable. We have a huge crisis, uh, economic crisis, yeah. hundreds of thousands losing their jobs. That is a far bigger issue than the scale of the trade deal with the EU. And it seems to me that it's a sort of middle-class betrayal of the working class. It's people who can work from home. I keep arguing with them on Twitter all the time, who say, I'm very happy working from home. I see more of my kids. I don't have to commute. I don't have to spend money in shops. I don't have to spend money on lunch. Well, that's all very well. It's a very selfish attitude, and it's not going to save the economy. It's incredibly selfish. And I believe, actually, people are more productive in general, when they're in an office, yeah. when you're brainstorming, you're being creative together. Look, of course, you know, sometimes working from home can be very productive. You've got a report to read or write, that's fine. I think the truth is, Mike, look, the horse has bolted out of the stable. Many people, many office workers may end up at some form of, call it a 50-50 type deal, a bit of homeworking, a bit of working from the office. But we've also got to think of our duty to young people, for example. Young people can't just start work sitting in front of a computer screen no. the whole day. They need to be in an office, they need to listen to learn uh, from more senior colleagues, uh, experienced colleagues, listening to creative techniques, ideas, sales techniques. They need to be in office and we need to help them. That's part of our duty uh, to the younger generation coming through. Couldn't agree more. Richard Tice, thank you very much indeed. Chair of the Brexit Party, businessman, former MEP, of course, in Brussels. We need to get the economy going. Uh, we need to get teachers to stop whining. We need to get teachers back off of their holidays and back into the classrooms. They're going to be doing it in Scotland. We need to do it here. We'll be keeping the pressure up on Serco. I'll bring you the latest from them uh, over the weekend that they told us about. I'll bring you the latest from the Home Office. Chris Philp, uh, the Home Office Minister, is going to be going over to France uh, today and tomorrow to try and get a deal with the French to make them more responsible for what is going on backwards and forwards across the English Channel. The Independent Republic of of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We keep hearing conflicting stories from various different politicians. Some of them say testing, testing, testing is the way forward. Others say 
The problem with testing is it's not really a silver bullet. Others say, uh, well, of course, if we can test and trace more people, uh, then we'll know more about it. Others are now saying this morning on the front page of The Times, uh, the children's czar, Anne Longfield, not somebody I have a great deal of faith in, to be honest, uh, says make virus tests routine for teachers and pupils. Well, why would be my question. Let's ask Peter Hitchens. Peter, very good morning to you. Morning. Now, uh, testing, it seems to me, uh, is something that nobody can agree upon because we keep hearing conflicting stories as to whether it's effective, whether it's worthwhile, uh, whether there's any point to it. You know, I'm, I'm very confused at this point. Well, so am I. From the beginning of this, I remember some people say, saying that, uh, testing, testing, testing. Yeah. They sound a bit like, like um, the old Blair going on about education, mm. education, education. Right. A, a, a slogan which he certainly didn't live up to. No. Uh, as if it were some kind of uh, magic incantation. Mm. As if the, the virus, when tested, would be frightened and run away. Yeah. Uh, I could never see what the connection was between testing and uh, and trying to, to to deal with the virus. Uh, it seemed to me to be a, 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 so much of this has seemed to me to be a, a, a ignoring the great lesson of King Canute's uh, struggle against the tide, uh, which is I don't think any more even taught in schools. We don't understand what it was, no. and, and you can tell from from the way people behave what he was demonstrating when he set his throne up on the seashore and ordered the tide to go back, he was demonstrating to his courtiers, there are some things governments just can't do, mm. kings can't do. I can't command the tide. No more can governments command the spread of a virus, which by its nature is, is going to get through almost all human defences and, and has done and does. What, what we now have with testing is a, is a constant excuse uh, for the government to claim that things have not got any better. Mm. Uh, and what completely astonishes me about this is that people take it seriously. Yeah. Anybody looking at the figures, you can go to, to Statista, uh, one very important website, which does the deaths per million mm. in, in every country, or you can go to the coronavirus uh, worldometer, and you can look at the state of play in every single country in the world, and what you'll find is that in most countries, the number of people dying from coronavirus has dropped enormously from where it was, particularly in the, the, the European countries, I should mm. say, enormously from where it was, in April, and the deaths are very much lower. So what these tests are showing, uh, 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 things which are grandly called cases and infections, are positive tests. If you then look at the, the figures for hospitalizations and deaths, you'll find that the, there's almost no connection between the level no. of, of positive tests and hospitalizations, let alone deaths. Most of these people have either very mild symptoms or no symptoms at all. Right. So what does it mean? Why, what, what it's actually showing, if you look at it rationally, and if you, if you stop and think for just a moment, is that actually the disease is not that serious? Well, that's the uh, thing. I, mean, I was just talking to uh, I was just talking to Carol Sakura, who said I, he said you know the lockdown in Leicester is over. I said, were there any additional deaths or uh, increased hospital admissions? He said, no. Yeah. You know, it's well, crazy. I, what, what, we discussed this. I mean, the, the 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 figures about increased cases in Leicester followed an eightfold increase in the number of testing centres. Yeah. And this just happens over and over again. And you, you look at the number of tests conducted, for instance, in New South Wales or Victoria and Australia, and they've gone up enormously. In good heavens, they found an awful lot more so-called cases, mm. so-called infections. And th this, in, uh, along with a very small number of deaths, most of them, uh, regrettable as all deaths are, but nonetheless it's important to note this, most of them among very old people with, uh, who were already quite ill, uh, has been used as a pretext for shutting down the entire vast city of Melbourne. Yeah. 
uh, in the most extraordinary uh, state of state of emergency, such as one might normally see at a, at a time of invasion. Mm. And it's completely ridiculous and disproportionate. But, but what, again, there is no, the parliament doesn't exist, uh, and the, the media seems to have checked its brains in somewhere and, and, and for, forgotten the ticket. Well, exactly right. And that's where we are now, because every weekend, before I speak to you on a Monday, I'm reading more and more pieces over, over the course of various different media and watching stuff on the news. There's a kind of disconnect going on between people who I think have reached the point of no return where they don't care anymore and they're quite happy to go out. Um, I had a little birthday bash on Friday night in a pub not far from here. Uh, the people who came were all very happy to come. Um, there was a little bit of social distancing going on, but there was a bit of hugging going on from time to time. There was other people who were visiting the pub, going out for a meal, and, and they're all quite happy to go about what you would regard as normal social uh, behaviour. And yet there's an entire other group of people who are telling me they're frightened to get on a train. I know, and they are frightened. Yeah. I, I, I used to think maybe they were making it up, and I'm, no doubt some of them are, but to stay away from work, but an awful lot of people are genuinely afraid. Yeah. But if I walk into Marks and Spencers not wearing a muzzle, that I will kill them. Yeah. They really think that. They do. And they think that I am a, a horrible, brutal, selfish criminal for, for, for doing yeah. this thing. And th this, this is the case. I mean, I have in, in my time believed some stupid things. And no doubt. Oh, we all I have, believe, I suppose. No doubt I believe some now. And we'll realize later that this isn't so. But generally, I believe them because I hadn't investigated what I was, uh, what I was thinking or mm. saying. And uh, I was falling in with the crowd. It's quite rare for me to have taken a position. Uh, which wasn't a crowd position and found later on that that was wrong. Right. I mean, have you at any point in your discourse, and I know you've occasionally had doubts when you've said them to me, but have you ever thought from the beginning of this that you might be wrong? You have to think it. Uh, on every occasion, I, this, is, this happened to me, I remember on a completely different issue, I, I, try, I joined in a campaign to clear the name of a, of, um, of, of a dead bishop of the Church of England who'd been accused of, of child molesting. Mm. And at the beginning of it, I said to the other people who joined me, I said, we have to be, we, we have to be prepared. We, we must never be afraid of the truth. We might be wrong. Mm. Uh, we have to be completely rigorous about how we pursue this. And if in the course of pursuing it, we find that, that in fact, this man did do the terrible thing which he's accused of, mm -hmm. then we have to be the first to admit it. Yeah. There is no other way to approach any battle about facts and logic. You have to be prepared to accept that you might be wrong, yeah. or you will close your mind at crucial moments to important things, and you will make a mess of it. And you've said this about Boris Johnson and his government, haven't you? Because they will refuse forever, as far as you're concerned, to admit that they may have made uh, an error in uh, sort of diagnosing COVID. And I suppose their, their cloak of security um, is the rest of the world. Because aside from very, very few countries, almost everybody's acted as, as Boris Johnson has acted. Yes, and also there's a myth has been constructed, uh, which will be used when the inquiry eventually happens, that the reason why things went wrong was not that they did it at all, but that they did it too late. Mm. Uh, over and over again, the people who are prepared to, to criticize the, the event will criticize the conduct of it, but not the actual nature of it. No one will say, it was a mistake to do this. They will say, well, we did it wrong. Yeah. And that's been the attitude taken by, by Keir, Keir, Sir Keir Starmer, I want to say, the leader of the opposition, mm. uh, that he's never criticised the action itself, only the implementation of it. And, and it, minds are completely... 
completely closed to the possibility mm. that this, this might have been a mistake. And, and until the government admits that it might have been a mistake, those people will still be frightened and will still think I'm a murderer when I go to Marxism. Yes, and I don't know whether you saw the piece at the weekend, I think it was in the Times initially, about the Swedish um, sort of situation, which you have always mentioned in passing as, a, as an example of what could have been done and how it could have been done differently, where, where some of their scientists in Sweden were saying they couldn't understand the decision-making that was coming out of SAGE here and was coming out of this government. They thought it was bonkers. Well, of course they did, and because, because what they saw was a, was a panic. And Sweden is, and for, for all its many faults, and they, they do, it does have many faults, it's is a grown-up country in a way that we're not. And education levels are, I think, significantly higher. Uh, and there's a there's a there's an unwillingness to panic, mm. uh, which uh, and and what uh, and what also they, they they don't seem to have any equivalent of sage. And I'm still fascinated by some of the sage documents which have come out, where it's quite clear that there were people in the in within government who actually wanted to panic the population. Mm. And he, here is this thing from one of the sage documents: options for increasing adherence to social distancing measures, from the 22nd of March, uh, persuasion. Paragraph two, the perceived level of personal threat needs to be increased among those who are complacent using hard-hitting emotional messaging. To be effective, this must also empower people by making clear the actions they can take to reduce the threat. Uh, it, and and this, this is, some thought went into this. Social psychologists have been active here. We have been, we've been worked on by hidden persuaders to try and make us afraid. Yes. But I think this is also a function of the way that our society has evolved, without wishing to get too philosophical and deep. I got an email at the weekend from a water company called Southeast Water, who basically said, uh, important message, only use water for essential purposes. Um, please uh, only use it for drinking, hygiene and cooking. And then it said, people in your community were without water yesterday as a result of very high demand. Now, I would suggest to you, Peter, that that's a complete barefaced lie. Why would people well, be without be water? I, I, I don't know. I, I, one water company I had experience of, I remember they, I, I reported to them a pretty considerable leak in the main, yeah. which, was, which was pouring down a small river down a, a road, a hillside road, not far mm. from where I live. And after I eventually got through to them after about five attempts, and they said, oh, well, that's not, it's, it, we'll fix that sometime in the next three weeks. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, that's not, it's, we don't regard that as being an important enough leak to do, to do any kind of emergency action. And I never took any notice of any of their pleas to save water after no. that, because they plainly didn't really mean them. In any case, the water companies, the history of the, the selling off of the water companies and the, their attitudes they take and their lack of investment in all kinds of things which would really uh, save water is so bad. But I, I'm reluctant to pay much attention to anything. Exactly. And, it, and I, and I, the use of this social pressure, which is increasing, now you must you, know, you must be a, a, a loyal public. Yeah. If you don't, if you if you have the, if you have that bath, if you water your garden, then you will be depriving others in your neighbourhood yeah. of water, and it will be your fault. Yes. And with the implied threat, we know who you are. Yeah. And it's absolute <laughs> nonsense. And meanwhile, well. they're leaking millions of gallons into the ground at any given minute of the yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. And equally, the people that I really find offensive are the people who are creaming off millions and millions of pounds, the directors of these privatised companies, who have been literally handed a licence to print money by previous governments. Yeah. And, that, and this is how Britain is now run. I mean, looking at yeah, Serco... After, after, the railways, after the railways, the water companies are the absolutely best argument against privatisation. Yeah. I, mean, I would, I would nationalise the whole thing again. I would. Like a yeah. shot. Which I never Personally, thought I would say. without compensation. I mean, they've made, they've made enough out of it 
not to require any compensation in my view, but it, it, yeah. has, it has really, really not worked for the benefit. No, I mean, it turns you into a country. sort of, you know, um, Chavez type, you know, Venezuelan president where you just go, right, we're taking all that back because you've taken the mickey out of us for too well, long. Let's not go too far. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I took a trip to Venezuela a few years ago yeah. to see how, how Comrade Chavez was getting on. I do not recommend it. No, I'm sure you're right. But you know what I mean? They managed to contrive a shortage of absolutely everything, including in in the country which produces it, of oil. Yes. And this is is an amazing achievement. They did manage to lose money on oil, which is quite hard to do. It was was a catastrophic and remains, I'm afraid, a catastrophic regime. People should beware of getting getting seduced by it uh, and any any direct experience of it. But also, this is why I've also... It's It's a disastrous society. I remember going... Uh, it, 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 going back to my hotel room and finding that I'd left my laptop out, mm. and the, there was a huge notice from the hotel saying, "Don't be so stupid!" And the, the laptop <laughs> was chained down by about nineteen bits of steel cable right. because this, you cannot leave anything anywhere in this country right. uh, without expecting it to be stolen. And wow. this, this was a major hotel in the centre of the capital. Incredible, but this yeah, is, but this that's is... what it was like. It, well, it, and it, it murder as well too. I have to say, not yes, I bet. But, but I mean, you know, looking again at the, I mean, I've come to the conclusion that the the, the migrant um, um, crisis that we are currently facing, which Pretty Patel says that she's going to fix, is entirely driven by not the people on the on the on the French side who are making fortunes out of it, but by the people on this side who are making fortunes out of it quite legitimately i.e. the people running the big companies, who are apparently um, people like Serco, whose major shareholders are asset management companies, BlackRock, you know, one of the most capitalistic companies based, I think, on uh, East 53rd Street in Manhattan, you know, who have got their fingers into all sorts of pies. These are the kind of companies that go into Iraq and repair it after the damage has been done by the bombs. You know, there's something... We've somehow lost control, in my view, of the running of our governments and the running of our countries. Well, maybe so. And I, those are connections I, I, I haven't m- myself made. And the people who are, who are largely responsible for this, and there are two sets of people responsible, politically responsible, those who blew up the world with the Iraq war and the Libya war and created, and indeed the, the intervention in Syria, which created these great waves of, of migration where people had such miserable lives at home that it seemed worth their while to trudge across thousands of miles to find mm. somewhere else to live. Uh, and and they, they have a lot of responsibility to bear. And then, of course, the people smuggling gangs. Right. Uh, who are making millions. Uh, well, they are. And his exploitation of these people is, is appalling. And nobody seems to be able to find any way of stopping. Hmm. It's very hard. I get the, 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 once the people have got used to the idea that the channel is actually quite easy to cross in the summer months, which I don't think have been commonly understood before. No. Uh, once that's happened, it's very, very difficult if there is a large number of people coming across Europe to do anything about it. I, the, we aren't, Australia has the, the, the advantage of very wide seas between mm. it and the, the, the main source of yeah. migration. So it can do these things like push back and it can indeed it can put uh, illegal immigrants into, um, in, 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 into camps on remote islands. Yeah. Uh, which we cannot, we cannot do, whether you approve of these things or not. And there are arguments about them. But if you, if, if anybody who, who says, oh, I can fix this, let's send in the Marines, mm. uh, we can do this. You have to say, how exactly are you going to do it? How are yes. you going to do pushback in the channel where there are no international waters? Uh, where are you going to put people if, if once you've taken them off their flimsy little kayaks and rafts? What are you going to do with them? Yes. Legally, what can you do? 
I'm very mistrustful of the boasts of politicians about their ability to sort this out, I'm afraid. It it has a much deeper reasoning behind it, and uh, I'm not sure that it is, in fact, soluble. No, well, that's the problem. And I'm less convinced than than, than I was, particularly now that I know that there is private um, capital being made in this country by people who are just involved in in commerce, effectively. You know, as long as they get a number of people coming... They will make money per head, and I'm sure that's how they how they add it up. But let's move on to the House of Lords because you wrote an interesting piece about Claire Fox at the weekend. I thought, um, and 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 your what what I liked about the piece was that you said you actually had quite a bit of time for Claire Fox, but you were just oh, I rather, do. I think she's, rather she's, surprised she's, she's, that she's she was elevated person. in such a way. She's an interesting person. She, she's she's prepared to to stand up for herself and say things that other people um, don't don't like her saying, mm. and has been right on some things, and is an interesting voice, and has made a, a very successful career. I, this has nothing to do with personal animosity, mm. uh, but it, what the point I was trying to make was this: here, here was the, the, this person who belonged to the Revolutionary Communist Party, which in 1993, when the horrible Warrington bomb went off and, and killed those two children yeah. uh, was prepared to defend the uh, the action as legitimate yeah. and uh, what's more when challenged about this and there's a very interesting article about this in in, um, in in a magazine called the critic when challenged about this she 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 stuck to her guns as it were and said mm. no no I'm not this, 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 my opinions uh, haven't changed and although she was she made the necessary noises of personal sympathy she did not denounce her previous position and, uh, and, and, and as, a, as a result, of course, the, um, the, the, she, she, it, it raises the point, what is a conservative prime minister, I, I use the word with a capital C, uh, whose party uses the Union Jack as its emblem, which is given to singing Land of Hope and Glory, putting someone like Claire into doing, putting someone like Claire into the House of Lords. I mean, it may well be that there is a place for someone like Claire in Parliament, and, and that's, that's an argument for another time. Mm. But if the Conservative Party is what it says it is, then this is a bizarre thing for it to do. What I'm trying to get people to do is to think about what the Conservative Party is. I'm yes. not really having a particular go. I mean, completely disagree with her about the IRA. I've always yeah. hated the IRA. Me too, yeah. I hated, when I was a trot, I hated the IRA. I had mm. people expelled from my, from my sect in the 1970s for, for shouting victory to the IRA on yeah. demonstrations. I hated them so much. Yeah. Uh, th- that's, that remains my position. But what is the Conservative Party, which, which got an awful lot of its support from attacking Jeremy Corbyn for his sympathy uh, with Irish republicanism, what are they doing putting Clare uh, into the House of Lords? It, it does, doesn't fit if the Tory party is what it claims to be uh, on its tin. Well, if you could claim uh, whatever the Tory party is currently supposed to be, uh, I would t- probably buy you a very large lunch because I don't know what it stands for anymore. I can tell Honestly. you what it is. Go on. It's a, it's, a, it's a Blairite formation. It was clubbed into, into Blairism by, by David Cameron. Yeah. And this was, uh, I, I wrote a book about this called, called The Cameron Delusion in which I explain exactly how the Conservative Party was overwhelmed by the Blairites and turned into, into a branch of, of, of New Labour, which it has been ever since. Yeah. And, and Mr Johnson, remember, when he was mayor of London, he effectively became Ken Livingston. Mm. To become mayor, he took, he, he took, and one of the people he took on was a, was a, was a lady called Manira Mirza, yeah. uh, who is now his, the head of his policy unit, who, who is also associated with the Revolutionary Communist Party uh, and its, its outgrowth. I, 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 there's some dispute about whether she actually belonged to it. Yeah. Uh, but she's there as the head of his policy mm. unit. 
And I presume uh, also by... People think, people think the Conservative Party is Conservative. Really do need to do a bit of reading. But by making the Conservative Party Blairite, I totally agree with what you said that David Cameron had done, they also then left the husk of the Labour Party behind, which is still struggling with that. I saw that over the weekend, I think it was Robert Colville wrote an interesting piece about how Sir Keir Starmer has now become sort of beige. Um, so I've gone, he's gone from forensic to beige in the space of about three months. It is a difficulty. I mean, the, the, the big problem for the, for the Labour Party is their, their complete loss of Scotland. Yes, uh, which, which they're never getting left, back. Left them very difficult. I don't think they are getting it back. No, it's left them in a very difficult, ele- difficult electoral position. And of course, the utter collapse also of the of the Liberal Democrats, who might at one point have formed a coalition with them. Yeah. But who knows what the future will bring? I, in, in all our politics lies on one side of a deep and dangerous river at the moment, mm. which we are about to cross, which is the deep and dangerous river of economic collapse. Right. Have you got a coracle? Everybody struggles out of the other side of that or when actually everybody doesn't. (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure what we're crossing it in. Differently about politics, I think. What are we crossing it in? It feels like it's a coracle that's going to just go round and round and round and probably get swept Uh, down. In many cases, stark naked. Um, (laughs) I'm trying to to, to see if I can get a millionaire to ferry me across the yacht. But I I don't know any. But it's billionaire, I should say. Millionaires are nothing these days. Well, go and hang Um, around in one of those uh, expensive hotels in the West End. You'll probably find a couple of Russians might be able to help you out. <laughs> I know. I have other problems with Russians already. Thank <laughs> you very much. Quite. Peter, this is great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Peter Hitchens uh, with the latest update on the way things are uh, and the way they should be and uh, perhaps the way they will be. Who can say? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's right now, though, get to our homeschooling section. It's what we do every day at 12.30, despite the fact that we are technically uh, no longer in school. But people are going to be talking about going back to school already, as we heard from Lisa Francesca Nan at the beginning of September, first week of September, uh, for most kids, it would seem. And uh, so if you are away on holiday and you have to quarantine yourself, you may have to come back a little bit early. But uh, don't worry, there's no quarantine for homeschooling here on Talk Radio. Steve Brace joins us once more, Head of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society because we're going to talk about maps. Steve, very good afternoon to you. Welcome back. Hi, Mike. Thanks for coming. I do, I, do, I do like a map. I mean, I must admit, I'm more, I'm more of a sort of a road map type person than an ordnance survey map type person. But I did um, have the, um, the good fortune to learn how to read an ordnance survey map. Tell us about sort of how maps came about, first of all. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, let me just get one thing out of the way. I mean, there's no problem at all people using SatNav, and I'm sure your listeners will have that on their phones and in their cars, and it'll get you from A to B. But I think, like you said, there's nothing even, even better than that, is being able to read a map. Mm. And as we've seen throughout history, I think one of those real human things we want to do is to convey a sense of a journey in a place, and whether that's in a little, you know, we've all seen a sort of five-year-old's map of their journey from home to school, through to the beautiful and the really detailed maps we see in the RGS Atlas and our collections we've got on site, through to the Urban Survey. And it's just one of those things I think we'll, in many, many years to come, we'll still be producing maps of places we want to visit and journeys we want to take. Yes, quite. And mapping, I suppose, would have begun um, perhaps in, in, in days before maybe um, maps on the land, but there were maps on the sea, charts. Indeed. Yeah, so sea charts, um, you, you'll see loads of those from sort of antiquity and history. And also many different communities have all produced maps. So there are some beautiful Inuit maps, mm. which are carved sticks 
states that have the tapes and bays of what would be Arctic Canada and Alaska <coughs> and Greenland, excuse me, shaped into the edges of a stick. And you look at them, you think, how's that a map? But mm. once you understand the local terminology and stuff, it's something that's been with it, all of us, wherever we are in the world. Yes. And I suppose looking at very old and early maps, it's interesting because of the way that they perceived the world to be, because it wasn't always quite as they thought it was. Yeah, I mean, we've got a fantastic map in the RGS collection, which is the earliest map we've, we hold, and it's from the late 1400s. It was produced in um, in what is now uh, the Netherlands. Hmm. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a, an atlas of the world. It doesn't show the Americas. It was too early in terms of the map makers then. Right. It doesn't show Africa below the Sahara. But the map of Britain, um, and Scotland's twisted over to the east. So it looks, it looks almost right, but not quite right. Hmm. And my Latin is not up to scratch, but it talks of the ocean Germanicus, which we call the North Sea today, yes. and the ocean Occidentalus, which we call the Atlantic. So it's just interesting how some of those names have changed in the minds of the map makers over time as well. Yeah. So it's a bit more accuracy. About yeah, I'm just looking at it now. Why, I mean, why do you think Scotland is sort of skewed off to the east as if it's going towards Scandinavia? Yeah, I mean, even though this map was actually drawn in the late 1400s, it draws on coordinates from a Greek um, geographer called Ptolemy from you know, antiquity mm. before uh, the birth of Christ. So these, the coordinates that we use were over 2,000 years old. Wow. And I think, I think we have to give sort of Ptolemy a few uh, sort of benefits of the doubt, quite <laughs> where Scotland is. So it sort of shapes are about right, but it's a bit twisted. Right? Yeah, I mean, you definitely can recognise it as, as the United Kingdom and the British Isles and all of that, because, I mean, actually Ireland looks quite accurate. And Cornwall, yeah. funnily enough, looks a little bit... Um, fatter, I suppose, than it, than, it, than it does when it really tapers yeah. down towards the end. But nonetheless, I mean, it must have been terribly exciting to kind of discover new parts of the world that you could actually draw on a map. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what we see in, in the sort of maps the RGS holds is, as you said, they're not always accurate. Um, they, they, you know, we sort of give them a bit of a benefit of the doubt. We do have some early maps that show California as an island, mm. and of course, many, many parts of the world just as blanks on the maps that were filled in with intricate drawings of what they thought they might find there. But yes. nothing quite at the level of the detail we get from the Ordnance Survey today in terms of their stuff. Right. Is there any part of the world that's sort of been unmapped or not mapped very much? I think certainly in terms of the world's surface. Um, it's been pretty well covered now. Um, I think in terms of the, the, the parts of the world that, that aren't as detailed in terms of their coverage would be the deep ocean seabeds. Yes. And we do have some fantastic relief maps and charts of those. But in, you, know, you just can't get the, uh, the level of detail you, you might No, I mean, I like to talk about Mariana Trench quite a bit, which nobody really knows much about. There's, so, there's all sorts of things down there and, and contours, yeah. no doubt, and little caves that we don't even, we, we've, never, we've never discovered. That's right. There'll be bathymetric surveys that have the heights and so on. But mm. in terms of what we'd expect from a sort of map of, of uh, a land area. And no, has no, satellite no. mapping sort of changed the world of mapping, if you like? I think, I mean, let's face it, you know, many people will, will pop up Google Maps on their phone when they're trying to get from A to B or look at a place and so on. And, um, you know, I mean, just thinking about the amount of stuff that changes you know, because people say, oh, if they look at their back garden on, on, on a picture of Google Earth, it might have changed from when the um, the original picture was taken. I think the Ordnance Survey make about 
20,000 changes every day. To that. They don't print the maps every day, mm. but in terms of the computer that holds all the information that's through both their team of surveyors and they do lots of aerial photography as well. They do mm. Yeah, so they're changing their, their base map, uh, what they call their master map, daily. Yes, and as far as, um, you know, kind of more intricate maps go, I mean, are, there, are people still making more and more intricate maps at the moment, even as we speak? So, for example, is somebody working on a, you know, sort of 2021 map of London? Oh, yeah. I mean, the um, I, I sort of figure, I think the ordinance they have 450 million items of information on their maps. Mm. Now, some of those will have been there from long period of time, spot heights, rivers, and so on and so on. But it will also include things like uh, they've got recent map symbols for electric car charging points and oh, yeah. um, uh, solar wind farms you see from the size of the motorway and so on. So they've been recently introduced onto their maps, wind farms as well. So there's all that new information being gathered and, and added on as well. Because mm. that's the other interesting thing for me is that if you do have a sat-nav in the car, sometimes um, if it's quite an expensive one, you need to upgrade it. Otherwise, you're basically... Um, looking at a map I mean I've, I've been in, in parts of the country where you're driving along a road which apparently according to your sat nav doesn't exist yeah there is I've had that as well where you're going well, I know I'm on a road yeah but it doesn't show on the map and right. that, that's to be a bit disconcerting well it is a bit because like you, you think say, I'm not driving in the middle of a field here am I you know yeah it's suddenly going to finish and end but yeah yeah and, and you're right that sort of caution about the need to update them and keep them regular and fresh is, is really important right now I mentioned before uh, you came on that there was a great map shop which I think is now no longer there which used to be in Longacre in Covent Garden was it, called oh, okay. Sta- was it called Stanford? Stanford. It was one of those yeah, great yeah, yeah. places that you would go. I yeah. mean, in I mean, many moons ago, it's the place I would it's go still for there, example. Actually. Oh, is it right? If I yeah. wanted to drive to somewhere like you know Spain or France, you'd go in there and you'd get a proper like road atlas of Spain and France. Yeah. Because you could, you know, and I suppose that might have been before the days of uh, of sat navs. But uh, I always loved going in there because it was just such a kind of a treasure trove of stuff. Yeah, we do lots of work with, uh, through the RGS with Stamford. Right. And, you know, it really is a map addict's sort of treasure trove. It really is, yeah, absolutely right. And is there such a thing as the first ever map? I think that's probably difficult to establish mm. because, you know, there'll be you know very early drawings in antiquity and, you know, cave paintings and so on. So I, I, I'm not going to take a punt on the earliest map, but I think we can certainly see in the sort of culture of very early civilizations things that we may not recognise as a map today, but are clearly showing direction, location and places yes. that whatever the civilizations are trying to show to each other. Right. Okay. Fascinating stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Steve Brace, Head of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.